So you have about six more hours. Is it all done at <laughs> nine? Nine o'clock? Yes. Yeah. So at the end, you're so tired. Whatever Pastor Q asks you, you just say yes. Just whatever. It's called wearing the people down. So I'm going to just uh, give you. I need to leave here at four. 35 at the latest, uh, and I just want to share this uh, as an advertisement as well. Uh, I'm a full-time pastor, but, but a part-time dean, academic dean, at a seminary called the John Leland Center. And uh, I call myself the accidental dean, accidental president, not, not accidental pastor, I knew I was, I was going to be a pastor, but... Uh, so besides church, I'm involved with two other kind of institutions. Uh, one is the seminary. We are going through a major transition. So uh, the last few weeks have been very busy, and we still have some big decisions coming up this week. And then I'm in, involved with a group called the Reform Institute. It's mainly PCUSA churches, and it's geared towards equipping people in the Reformed tradition. And so you will think, uh, if you know anything about the Reformed tradition, it's a movement within Protestant Christianity, though small in number, has had a disproportionate influence all around the world. So if you are a Presbyterian church, you are part of the Reformed branch of this uh, pro Protestant movement. And, and so this group... Um, uh, uh, is going through transition as well. Um, a few years ago, Bob Hartley said, John, you're going to help Bruce. There aren't many Bruces around. There's a Bruce C. in New York, and the second Bruce is a man named Bruce Douglas. And so he's stepping down, and, and my role as the president of the board of directors is to find a replacement and just kind of get that institute ready for the transition. So that's in good place. The seminary, on the other hand, uh, I think it's going to end up well. Now, I want to mention this to you because you will have an opportunity, if all things go well, to take seminary courses. You don't have to come down to Virginia. We're going to develop some online courses, but we will have a satellite site, a satellite campus at People's Community Baptist Church in Silver Springs, a large African-American Baptist church. And so if you are interested in theological education, you don't have to be a pastor. Right now, people who are getting going into seminary are people who want to be equipped, both professionally in their marketplace, in government, for nonprofits. Uh, they want to be equipped for Sunday school teaching and church ministry. And more and more, I just see, and uh, this is totally unbiased, uh, we need the body of Christ to be equipped theologically and biblically. I think as a people, we know actually more about food than theology. Yeah, I, I say this because I, I, I love watching Netflix and all the food shows. Yeah, even though I'm a terrible cook, I, I, I know more about it. And isn't it sad that much of my brain is occupied with food and less with theology? And so we need theology. We need theology principally for one's growth in God. And I, I give you this introduction because although I will be teaching on the prophetic, much of what I will call charismatic expressions of the Holy Spirit is totally misunderstood. 
Okay? The miracles, the healings of Jesus is wrongly framed. And a sign of that misunderstanding is this. We live in a time where to go to a charismatic church or to have charismatic experiences, praying in tongues, prophesying, healing, are, are seen as sort of an option. It's like going to a Chinese restaurant. You could go down the street, go to a Chinese restaurant, an Italian restaurant or an Indian restaurant. It's as though churches are presenting themselves as a different kind of restaurant. And many of us believe that it's perfectly fine to go to a non-charismatic, anti-charismatic church. If, you don't, if your theology doesn't you know, jive with that, it's okay to go to this church or that church. And, and, but if you look at the Bible, there is no charismatic church or non-charismatic church. Every church in the New Testament is a charismatic church meaning it's power and power by the Holy Spirit, and these churches have manifestations of the Holy Spirit. And we need to understand why is it that, why is it the case that in the New Testament, the churches that we read about are what we would consider from a modern standpoint charismatic. It's because the very existence of the church depends on the dynamic ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so now we need to educate ourselves and our leaders, and, and this is something I do share with our students, to kind of disabuse them of this notion that you could choose a kind of church that fits you rather than figuring out what is the nature of the church. And so the, getting the theology correct is so important. Um, as I mentioned, I, I work as a dean, and one of the possible future is for us to merge with a seminary called Northern Seminary. And so I was out in Chicago a few months ago. They have, they have some great faculty. They have a guy named Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, a guy who does missional theology, David Fitch. And they have Cherith Fee Northering, Gordon Fee's daughter. So I see I see Gordon Fee's daughter, and I go up to Cherith. I goes, I'm a big fan of your father's. And she says, me too. <laughs> and so we start talking, and I tell her one of the books I use consistently or refer to is her father's book on Paul, the Spirit, and the people of God. I, I commend this book to you. He's, he's got God's empowering presence. That's the fat one. This is a shorter one. Every theologically-minded person should read this, okay? It's a short book, okay? And he says the following. At a recent coffee hour with students in the Regent College atrium, one student asked, if you were to return to the pastoral ministry, what would you do? Meaning, how would you go about it? What would you emphasize? My answer was immediate. No matter how long it might take, I would set about with a single passion to help a local body of believers recapture the New Testament church's understanding of itself as an eschatological community. I then set about to explain why and what that might look like in the present day. I have no illusions that it would be, e it would be easy, I further explained. The one feature that probably more than any other distances 
of the New Testament church from us is the thoroughgoing eschatological perspective from which believers view everything that God had wrought through Christ and the Spirit. Eschatology has to do with the time of the end and refers, first of all, to Jewish expectations that God through his Messiah will bring a dramatic end to the present age. This, in turn, will be followed by the coming age, signaled by the resurrection of the dead and the gift of the promised Holy Spirit. Eschatology is not a word you hear every day, but basically translate that into God's kingdom. And in the Jewish worldview, they thought not abstractly like the Greeks. Greeks thought of God and religion as abstract. Okay? So that's why you would have a timeless God. God is outside of time. That's really a Greek notion. God is not made out of parts and so forth. In the Jewish theology or worldview, God is always seen as historical. The very definition of God is, we don't know who God is, but this God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of Moses. And so in that historical framework, they believe that when God broke in, breaks in, there's going to be a new age. Not the new age, but the new age. The coming age. And in the coming age, God will reverse all that the old age was marked by because of sin. They, know, they knew their story, that God didn't create the world broken and full of sin. Something happened in Genesis 3. The fall came. God created everything good, then something terribly wrong happened. And God is not satisfied with leaving a sinful, broken world alone. He wants to come and heal it. He wants to come and fix it. He wants to come and rescue it. And that time of that healing and rescue is called the coming age. And that rescue happens through Jesus Christ. That's the alarm. That's the surprising thing. The Jewish expectation is that God's going to do it. The surprising thing is that it will be through this man, Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, the anointed one, ushers in that new age. And that's why in his preaching, it was about the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then after preaching, he would cast out demons, heal the sick. Why? To demonstrate that the new age has come in his presence, in his person. And that's why, biblically speaking, for Jesus merely to preach would have been inadequate. It would be like half full. Anyone could preach. Any human person could say, hey, God is here, and just say that. But it's another thing to demonstrate that. And that's why you cannot have Jesus without the healing, without the casting out of demons, without the resurrection of the dead. To demonstrate God has broken in. And so in the present age, there are marks, there are features. There is sin. There is sickness. There is death. And there is the absence of the spirit. God creates the cosmos in order for the cosmos to be a habitation for his presence. The whole story in the Old Testament is about God's glory coming to dwell on earth. The word Shekinah is the glory And so God creates the cosmos in order for his 
personal, mysterious presence to fill it. The definition of glory isn't fireworks. It's the very glorious presence of God. That's why God created And And so with sin, Adam and Eve are chased out of the garden, the place of his presence. And so the big theological question is, what about his presence? And the rest of the Bible is to answer that question, what about his presence? And you get some highlights. You get some promises. Presence comes in the tabernacle. Presence comes in the temple. And to the grief, consternation, deep sadness, the presence leaves the temple right before the Babylonian captivity. Now they're wondering, will the presence ever come back? And the answer is yes. John 1.10, Jesus became flesh and he tabernacled among us. The answer to what happened to God's presence comes in Jesus. And then, astoundingly still, that presence is poured out upon people in Acts 2. We are now, Paul says, the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is in us. We are the living temple. And the Spirit is among us. The answer to what happened to God's presence, the answer in the New Testament, He's right here. The presence is here. And wherever there is the presence, there is power, there is life, there is the reality of the new age, the coming age. And in the coming age, you have the opposite. Where you had sin, you have righteousness. Where you had sickness, you had wholeness. Where you had death, you have the resurrection. Where you had the absence of the Spirit, you have the presence of the Spirit. And one of the chief signs of the presence is prophecy. The Old Testament sign of God's presence often is prophecy. And so when we look at Acts 2 and the presence of God is poured out, and everyone's confused. This is the Feast of Pentecost. Right? This is the feast to commemorate the giving of the law. Instead of the law being given, the Spirit is, being, is given. Right? The ability to live out the law, the power to live out the law is now given the Spirit. And this is Pentecost is also the festival of first fruits. Instead of harvest, now you have the harvest of soul. 3,000 are saved. So God is incredibly creative. The Spirit is poured out, and Peter stands up. People are wondering, are they drunk? He says, that, no, we're not. It's only 9 in the morning. We need to understand that contextually. Okay. That's when the fasts are being broken. You fast through the night, and so it's too early to break the fast. It's only 9 in the morning. And he quotes from Joel 2, 28, 32. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will what? Prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. So the sign in the Old Testament, the, 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 the number one sign of the spirit is prophecy. Not, it's not the only one. We know that when Samuel anointed David, the spirit came upon him in power from that day onward, and he was able to kill bears and lions and Goliath. So there's power. Elijah did healings and miracles. 
there's power. But not all prophets did that. We don't have any accounting of powers and miracles through Isaiah or Jeremiah. Okay? But nevertheless, prophecy is a sign. And so this gift of prophecy that was on select people in the Old Testament, now, now it's poured out upon sons and daughters, regular people. In the Old Testament, there were just a select class of people that enjoy the presence of God, kings, priests, and prophets. Your regular Joe, Bill, Jim, whatever, did not enjoy God's presence. But now this presence is available. This presence is available in a miraculous way, in a way that no Old Testament person ever experienced. That is, the presence of God has come to indwell you. Okay? We usually think of Moses and David and Elijah as greater mortals, greater human beings. But from a the- theological standpoint, they are lesser because none of them have the very spirit of God indwelling them. Spirit was upon them and with them. Moses would talk to Yahweh as he would talk to a friend. That's pretty awesome. But even Moses did not have the spirit of God indwelling them. Only because of the death of Jesus, when the curtain was torn from top to bottom, the Holy of Holies, indicating that now there's full access to the Holy of Holies, meaning a sinful person can come justified, cleaned up by Jesus, and now the very presence of God can come in you. And when the presence of God comes in you, it gives you identity. Paul writes, by his spirit, by this spirit, we cry out, what? Abba, Father, gives you your identity. It gives us our intimacy. But the presence of power upon is not taken away. What the Old Testament folks enjoy, that's also enjoyed by us. It's not a replacement. So in the Old Testament, they have power and prophecy. In the New, we just have the indwelling and sanctification. No, you have indwelling, sanctification, and empowerment. It's both. It's not a switch. I want to, I've been spending some time with this because this is the theological context or frame to understand prophecy. Okay? It's not certain people do this, our church doesn't do it. It's not like that. It's what does the Bible say? What is prophecy? Okay. Now, it is described by Paul as a manifestation of the Spirit. Okay, if you are interested in Paul's thinking, read 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. This particular church, as, as many of you knew, know, is fixated on the speaking in tongues. Okay? But Paul is telling them, you know, eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, follow the way of love, uh, always read 12, 13, and 14 together. Don't just read 13. Okay. When people get married, they just stick with 13. And some people will just read 13 as though if you have love and everything else is really unnecessary. No, no, continue to read. Paul doesn't say, you know what? You can speak in tongues, you can prophesy, you can do miracles, but what you really need is love. Paul doesn't actually say that. So read 14. So in 14.1, he says, follow the way of love. Follow what I've been talking about and, and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. It's both. Because your love needs to be empowered. You don't want a powerless love. 
Follow the way of love. Make sure all your motivation is love because in God's point of view, if you're motivated by something other than love, it is nothing. It's in vain. In God's perspective, it's really empty. So love is important. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts. And then he singles out especially the gift of prophecy. Why? Because it's the preeminent gift of love, because it's intelligible compared to speaking in tongues. So basically, if you are going to speak in tongues at church in a public setting, make sure there are interpreters. Because if you don't interpret, it'll just sound like gobbledygook. But actually, desire prophecy. Have one or two speak in turn and let others weigh. And so the gift of prophecy, you know, the topic of prophecy can be understood as a gift. Okay, it's a gift expressed in the church. And it edifies, it comforts, it strengthens, okay? But today I'm, I'm, I'm really not talking about the gift, okay? I'm not analyzing or presenting the gift of prophecy in the mode of gifting. What I want to talk about as I reflected on reflect you know, on this topic of the prophetic in my life, I want to present to you sort of John's filtered experience of the prophetic. And let me just say it's more than a gift. Okay? Number one, to be prophetic is for every believer. Let me use that word in a general sense. To be prophetic, if you, if you describe prophetic as hearing God's voice, Every Christian needs to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. How in the world are we going to grow in God if we are totally deaf to the voice of God? So every believer has some measure of sensitivity in hearing God's voice, whether it's studying in Scripture, listening to someone preach in a a meditation of silence, there is a sense that God is speaking to you. Because if you don't have that at all, then you are, at best, guessing, thinking, using your IQ to figure out what pleases God. You're doing your best. But if it is true that the Spirit of God is in you, by which you cry out, Abba, Father, that intimacy of sonship, daughtership, that intimacy is already there. Okay? And so as we grow in Christ, we are all growing, what I would say prophetically in a broad sense, being sensitive to the heart of God. Now, it is true that certain folks in the church will be really sharp, really good in this gift. And if you're really, really good, you may even be considered a prophet. Now, in the New Testament, you'll never be a scripture-writing prophet. If that were the case, you would be the the originator of a cult, all right, like Joseph Smith. There's more revelation, Sung Myung Moon. Oh, I am Jesus' younger brother. I mean, God is speaking to me. There's more. So whenever you have a prophet that says, I have the latest word of God, automatically, you don't even have to know the content. Uh, This person is is heretical. Okay? Okay? Now, we don't want to go to the extreme and limit the prophetic just through Scripture. Martin Luther, was he thought of himself as a prophet. His definition of a prophet 
is someone who rightly interprets the word of God. Okay. He limits that. Okay. But the gift of prophecy is the gift of hearing God's heart for you. That's what it is. And you grow on the basis of that. Okay. So the, pro the prophetic is interesting. Uh, when I was young, in college, um, as many of you know, uh, Shin, Kyung, Shin's wife, we were all classmates at Wheaton. Back then in the 80s, we didn't even use the word prophetic. We didn't even know such a word. The closest word is discernment. Okay? And so uh, we would pray. We were nerds. Uh, true study animals. So nerdy, we would be at the library before it actually opened. <laughs> we would have breakfast, go to chapel to pray for about 30 minutes. This is Shen and me. And right before the library opened, we have our backpacks and we're ready to study. <laughs> they open the door, and we do that because there are some, our favorite carols, uh, some desks. So you put your backpack down. And that backpack and the book stay till the library closed. Any break you have from class, you don't go to your room, you don't do anything, you go back to the library and you read for the next six, seven hours, however long. And that was our life every single day. Whenever the library is open, we are there. Okay. So a few weeks into that, Kyung, who's a transfer from UMBC, tells us we're younger guys because I think it would be good for us to pray. I said, sure, let's pray. Library closes at 9 o'clock on Friday, a little bit early. And so, uh, I, you know, me and Shin said, let's pray at 8.45. All right, that's 15 minutes. Because, you know, we want to use up our time to study. 8.45 to 9 o'clock. And so we met in the, the special collection on the stairwell. And almost at that time, almost, the library itself is almost empty. And we're praying about two, three weeks into it. Uh, the roommate of Kyung says to us, the three of us, she says, uh, I got to tell you something. I am suicidal. I've been depressed. I've been sleeping. I haven't been going to class. I mean, she just said it directly. And, and we didn't have to talk much. I mean, me and Shin kind of looked and said, well, we're thinking 15 minutes won't do it. So we went to Kyung's apartment and spent hours praying that evening, and she gets radically delivered. She is filled with the Holy Spirit. She's crazy. She's giddy. She's rolling around. This is pre-Toronto. I mean, we've never seen them. We pray, you know, we're just praying, and she gets zapped, and she's like doubling over, laughing. She's just, and it doesn't let up. It goes on for days, weeks. She's like the most joyful person ever. And then word gets out that there's some kind of thing. That's how our all-night prayer meeting got started, by accident. And so different people would come, and we're college kids. People got delivered of eating disorders, healed of eating disorders, all kinds of stuff, deliverance, I mean, you name it. And I was telling you this because we were praying. Now, when I look back, we were being prophetic. 
So none of it was organized. So like an hour or two before the prayer meeting at 8, and we would go to from like 8 to like 4 or 5 a.m., all night, literally all night. So Shen was the main leader of worshiping, and, and so we, would, and we had no idea what the evening held in store. We didn't even have the terms for it. We just said, I wonder who's going to be on the hot seat. Because there was no special invitation. This is how Andrew and Noreen came, Kent. They were curious. And Kent and Andrew got freaked out. They got scared. So they, you know, they, they never want to be on the hot seat. But that's how they got introduced to this. And, and people will, different people will say, I need prayer. And that evening, that night will be all dedicated to that one person. And the prayers that pour forth were prophetic. Even Kent said the life-changing prayer was while he was in college. A young lady was kind of rebuking him about his doubts and theology and all this skepticism. This is recently shared. And so when the Spirit of God moves, God wants to speak. God wants to heal. God wants to deliver. And when you speak it, we, that's prophetic. Okay. So thankfully, we didn't have the la- not having the language did not disqualify us from being prophetic. Many years later, we hear about the prophetic. And so I got introduced to the prophetic not even knowing that it was prophetic. Again, we didn't have the words. We just said discernment, you know, kind of general term. And so for me at that point, at that stage, I, because I didn't have the term, I couldn't grow in it. It just happened on Fridays. It would happen in my prayer time. So basically I was prophetic without knowing it. And if you had asked me as a college kid, how did you know that about that person? I would say, I don't know. I just prayed and I just saw a picture. I saw a word. I started crying. I would just describe my experience of praying, but I could not tell you that it was God. Most of the time, I had no idea it was God or me. It just all came as one. But because we lacked that category, none of us knew how to grow in it. We just did it. It just happened. Much later, I realized we were being prophetic without knowing it. And two, I could probe in it. I could kind of analyze what's going on. I could think about when I'm not so accurate. I could reflect on the different ways of prophecy and different things. And so, so much later, and it was really Bob, Bob Hartley. Not a perfect man, but he, he opened my eyes to this whole prophetic realm in a way that was deeper than just talking, in a, way, in a way that's more than just communicating. He opened my eyes and my heart to the prophetic as a lifestyle, and that's what I want to talk to you about. Prophetic, not as a gift, but as a lifestyle. Let me say, every Christian is invited to be prophetic in their lifestyle. Okay, and I'm going to mention three P's to unpack the three P's. One is this. As we grow in the prophetic, something deep happens. Something deep happens in your heart. As you engage God in prayer, it's not an engagement of information. You begin to feel the heart of God. 
And the best word is a Greek word, pathos. I mean, technically it means sadness, grief, but it's in a broader sense, it's feeling. The passions of God, the feelings of God, the ache of God, the joy of God, the longing of God, the hope of God, you, you're brought into it. Okay? Being open to the prophetic and saying, God, what is on your heart? And when you give yourself to prayer, that's the second P, you enter into this pathos of God. And the pathos ranges, the whole emotional range is there. Sometimes you're just elated by God's plans for a city. When God spoke to me in 2007, in China, he spoke to me in Chinese. I mean, that was my assignment. He spoke to me about Kongjung theology, K-U-N-G, C-H-U-N-G. The K sounds more like G, Kongjung means taking the city. God spoke to me. It was an intense prayer, Raphael commission, that for the rest of my life, one of my assignments is strengthened houses of prayer. And I felt the energy, I felt the hope and delight that God wants to possess cities and nations. It wasn't just an idea. God encounters me in a dream, and it is, it is so alarming in the best sense of the word. I am so awakened to it that I feel fully commissioned. Right? So I feel God's love, longing, okay? And the pathos has the other aspect of pain, of a sensing brokenness. Lord, you're doing this, but it's not happening. What in the world is going on? And so the entry, the life of the prophetic, is a, is a life filled with emotion, wide emotion. And I think that's the richness of life. If you have kids, God bless you. They're going to break your heart. <laughs> They're going to give you joy. You are in for a ride because you can't control your kids. Their joy becomes your joy. There's a saying that a mother's joy is always at the level of the least happy kid. Okay? You could have three kids who are, you have three kids, two are doing fantastic, and the third is just struggling. Your joy is at the level of the kid who's least happy because you're empathetic. You want everyone to do well. And so when you give yourself to the prophetic life, as you're praying and as you're seeing people struggle, people sin, people are broken, people are whatever, your heart also breaks. So you experience pain, some perplexity, but also the passion, the pathos of God. And now I cannot fully imagine my life without this element. Okay? I can't imagine a Christianity that I was prone to. By the way, when I was, although in college I had that experience, my tendency is for my brain to take over. That's why I was a philosophy major. I wanted to understand. And so I thought if I could just understand, then everything is okay. okay? So my tendency, my love, my first love is books, not people. Ideas, stories, philosophy, theology. So I could have had a life filled with books. Had it not been for the prophetic, I would have been a thinking person, but not a feeling person. 
I would have been a theologian or philosopher, but not a lover of God. A person who loves God, loves the things of God, loves what's on God's heart. And the prophetic opens us up into that. Okay? So that's the first piece, the pathos of God. The second P I already mentioned is prayer. The Old Testament description of the, of the prophet is a person who prays. You will never, ever read a prophetic, a prophet who doesn't pray. Because it's in the place of prayer that you hear God. It's in the place of prayer you argue with God. I love Jeremiah. Jeremiah is really impressive because even though God tells Jeremiah the word of judgment, Jeremiah is still like hoping against hope that somehow the people would turn around. So he's praying. And there are two places in the Bible, even God gets tired of Jeremiah <laughs> praying. So in 7.16, So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. <laughs> Jeremiah is such a lover of his people. Even though judgment is at hand, he can't help himself but plead to intercede. No, God, please, please. And God is kind of tired. Stop it. I'm not going to listen to you. But deep down inside, God is pleased. That's my man. Sometimes God will ask us to pray for things where the outcome is the opposite. You pray and pray for someone who's sick. The Lord knows this person will die. But it, it pleases him that you pray. It pleases him that you don't give up. Yeah? So prayer is more than about outcome. Prayer is an expression of love and devotion. So you do your part. Let God do his part. And so in Jeremiah 14, 11, Then the Lord said to me, Do not pray for the well-being of this people. It says it again. And so when you're a prophet, if you give yourself to the prophetic lifestyle, you will by, almost by definition, but by experience, you will become a man, a woman of prayer. And I'm not thinking about just sitting at church and praying and having your quiet time. Prayer will just be part of your life. The first thing you do as you get up is be in prayer. The last thing you do as you're going to bed is prayer. Even in the evening, you're praying. As you're driving, it's prayer. You don't know when one prayer starts and ends. It's just filled with prayer. Okay? And prayer is in a formula. Prayer is like, Lord, what's going on? Lord, intercede, intercede. We've got to do this. All day you're praying. Prayer without ceasing actually becomes possible. All that you're seeing is now seen from the eyes of what is possible in terms of God's kingdom. Okay? So you're not trying to be spiritual. You're not trying to be holy. You're, you're not. You're just, you've just given yourself over to the heart of God. Now you've been infected by his passions, his pathos, and you can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. And that's why love, the stirring of the Holy Spirit in the mode of love is so powerful. Most of the powerful things that we do are not chosen. It's in us. It's a passion. 
You don't know how to contain yourself. And so you, you see that even in Jeremiah. Like, he doesn't want to be a prophet, but then his bones are crying out. He's got to find some outlet. And so it becomes your very mode of existence, your very mode of praising God. Just as a tree pull, you know, spreads its branches, just as a bird flies, now as a prophetic person, you begin to cry out on behalf of the world, on behalf of your family, your friends, your church, on behalf of the city, on behalf of the next generation, because you know that God is able to change. You know, you know too much about the God of uh, the resurrection. You know too much about God who does miracles. You've been spoiled. You've been ruined. As I mentioned last night with Andrew, I said, Andrew, it would have just been easier had you remained a, a Presbyterian, a simple Calvinist. Whatever happens, happens. And, you know, you have, like, no expectation. But he was ruined because he experienced so much of God's power and intimacy prior to his imprisonment that, in contrast, by contrast, when God was not moving that way, it felt like judgment to him. He's ruined. He cannot go back to the conservative Presbyterianism. Like going back to black and white TV. Maybe some of you are so young you don't even know what black and white TV is. You can't go back to it. And that's why this prophetic thing is life-changing. And the thing is, you don't have to make that change. You just give yourself over to it. And so prayer becomes just ingrained. And prayer becomes... So part of you that it's a, it feels like a natural thing. It feels like breathing. It's, it's how your brain is now wired. Your brain is now thinking in the mode of prayer. Okay? Instead of just wishful thinking, it's prayerful thinking. When you see a stranger on the bus, you say, Lord, that person looks depressed. Help him, Jesus. When somebody's angry, you don't say, oh, I'm going to put... For me, I do so. I guess struggle. Prayer becomes a part of your very view of people. It's not just the person that you see filled with bad attitude. You see God at work. You see God at work even in non-Christians, and you begin to pray. And you can't help it. Because now you're seeing with the pathos of God. And the therapy is perspective. There are many other aspects, but I just want to highlight three. And these are all kind of related, if you think about it. The prophetic opens your heart to the heart of God who loves the world, who's got plans for the world, whose heart aches over the sins and brokenness of the world. You begin to experience that. That's the pathos. And in response to that, you begin to pray at a deeper level. You intercede, you petition, you cry out, you declare. And as you do that, there is a kingdom perspective that gets formed in your mind. You see things, what Gordon Fee would say, eschatologically. Your hope actually becomes Jesus come back, Jesus restore, Jesus stop this mess, Jesus come and get rid of this principality. 
your own perspective of what needs to take place, your perspective is not prophetically informed. This is now all just part of you. It becomes a part of you. It's not external. It's not alien. I love good writers. One of my favorite writers, a young man who passed away, 2008, David Foster Wallace. He gave a very famous commencement speech in Kenyon College, like 2006. It's not original to him. So two young fish are swimming in one direction. An old fish comes by in a fish tank. And the old fish says, uh, good morning, fellas. How's the water? And the, one, the two young fish continue to swim. One says to the other, I'm going to change the language a little bit. What in the heck is water? Okay. Water is culture. Water is what you're breathing in. And the prophetic is like water. The prophetic of hearing God's voice, of praying God's heart, of seeing from God's perspective, now it becomes water for you. It's just, you're not breathing in anything else. And so as I was thinking about this teaching today, I go, well, you know what? To talk about the prophetic for me in the mode of gift doesn't do justice. Something deep, something, something deep has happened. A deeper change has occurred through my experience in college, interaction with Bob, and in a church, in a family. And so this prophetic thing is part of our lives. My wife is prophetic. My girls are prophetic. Our church members are prophetic. But I say that not to brag or anything. I don't see them as special. I think that should be the case with everyone. We grew our kids. I mean, we raised our kids. Even, even now, no matter how, how they're doing with the Lord, we know when they start praying, they're hearing. They're, they hear very deeply with wisdom. I remember one of the more remarkable stories uh, when the girls were very young. My wife travels a lot, and, and being young, my girls didn't know exactly what she did. And so we were just praying in the car. And Suzanne had this huge project. And so we were just practicing. And so we were saying, we're going to ask Jesus what mommy's going to do. So the girls were young, I don't know, maybe 10 or 9, I forget. Elementary school. And the younger one says, Mommy's going to Kenya, and she's going to bring money. And we were shocked, because I knew that. Suzanne knew that, that she's going to go on a trip to Kenya, and she's bringing millions of dollars. So naturally, we said, uh, how did you get that? And Serena said, well, I saw an airplane, and on the side of the airplane, it said Kenya. And inside the airplane were gold coins. So as a nine-year-old, the Lord gave her a picture. And so we took that opportunity and other opportunities. See, you could hear from God. Isn't that cool? Now, being a nine-year-old, oh, whatever, you know. <laughs> okay? And so for our girls and our young people, the prophetic is not a strange thing. It's just what you hear when you pray to God. Okay? Now, I'm hoping that the other aspect of the prophetic will also seep into their hearts. 
the passion of Jesus, the pathos of God. Okay? And, and so the prophetic for me is more than a gift. It's more than even accuracy. It's, it's more than like hearing it and getting it accurate. How did you know? It's more than that. The more is you are encountering the God who wants to speak, speak from his heart, and to tell people who they are. And he's got plans for cities and nations in the next generation. And if he's got plans, then he wants to share. And it's our privilege to hear one of the more remarkable passages in the Bible. It's Amos, Amos 3.7. This is a, sort of the picture of the council table. Surely the Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servant, the prophets. The Lord loves to share his plans to his servants, his friends, so that when they do occur, there is a witness on earth. The Lord told me. Both great things or tragic things, the Lord will speak so that the people of God would know the Lord had designed that. The Lord's purpose was to do that. I want to be such a servant. I want to be such a friend. What I want to do is close in prayer, and I just want to open up the rest of our time for questions, okay? I want this to be a seminar, teaching. uh. And so, Lord, I just thank you. I thank you for the people here. I I thank you for Hope Church. It's been a praying church, a prophetic church. I just sense, Lord, there is a deeper invitation in the area of the prophetic that, one, everyone's invited. Everyone's invited because to be prophetic means to be a friend of yours, to feel what you feel, to see what you see. It's a deeper life of engagement with all the fullness of the various emotion, including pain and perplexity and even doubt on the one hand, but also on the other hand, elation. Just mind-boggling shock at, at how you fulfill your word. It's just joy. It's better than going to an amusement park. It's better than anything, Lord. Let me hear you and you do it. So, Lord, I just ask that you would qualify everyone. And I just say, everyone, you're qualified. If you know Jesus, you are qualified. Because you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. Every believer is born of the Spirit. And the Spirit of the living God is a living Spirit who speaks, who guides us. So now we ask, Lord, now that we're qualified, Lord, expand our hearts to receive more. Increase our faith to believe more. Expand our hope to anticipate more, Jesus. It's not about getting it right or getting it wrong and labeling someone prophetic or somebody apostolic or whatever. It's not about labels, Lord Jesus. It's about entering into your heart to wrestle with you, to hear from you, to bless what you are doing. 
And so we say yes to all the different ways that you communicate. We say yes to visions. We say yes to angelic encounters. We say yes to dreams. We say yes to all kinds of discernment, including the discernment of spirits, both of angels and fallen angels. We say yes to the intercessory prophetic, prophetic intercession. We say yes to the nations, Lord. It is possible to take in a whole nation in a heart by praying for them. We say yes to the cities that you have plans for. We say yes to the next generation. We say yes to right now, right here through this church, what you are doing. You will speak. You're not asking them to just occupy, to buy some time, to be a good neighbor, to be a good church. You're asking for something deeper and more dynamic. Be a prophetic witness, be a presence carrier, be a place of healing and hope so that people around this area will know, many will know, God is alive. So, Lord, we just come hungry. We come hungry. And once again, Lord, we just lay aside the bags that we've been carrying. I see many of you, it's almost like carrying uh, not backpacks full of books, but almost like a camping gear. You've been walking faithfully together, some, of, some husband and wife with kids. And the Lord just is asking you, not to unburden yourself from your responsibility, but even the burdens of life, give it to Jesus. Even these burdens, let him take care of it. And you give it to him in faith. You trust his goodness. You trust his competence. He knows what he's doing. So we unburden our hearts. We're not heavy laden, Lord. But we unburden our, unburden our hearts and we... Say to you, Lord, what is on your heart? What is on your heart? In Jesus' name, amen. So for about 30 minutes or so, any, should we take a little break? Any questions? Any questions about what I've said? Any questions about the gift of prophecy? I don't know how you're doing, because I've been standing up and preaching. I'm, I'm, you know, my adrenaline's sky high, and I'm fully away. I don't need no caffeine. But it's already been a long day for you, but, but uh, I do want to make good use of our time. Any questions? TJ. Can you expand on, like, I don't know, like pathos, how that relates to the prophetic? Can you expand on yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. So, so the pathos, um, I, I'll give you uh, a certain context. So the... So in Greek rhetoric for persuasive speech, they, they thought that you need to have three. Okay? The logos is the, like the argument, the reason. The ethos is the character, ethics, that's where we go. Pathos is the feeling. Okay? So the English are pathetic. Empathy, the P-A-T-H, is about feeling. So when you're empathetic, you feel what the other's feeling. And so pathos is feeling what God is feeling. But not exactly, because we will never fully feel, but it's feeling what God's children should be feeling. Okay. 
the love of God is not just kind of static. You know, we, we naturally think of love as, at core, emotional, full of feeling and desire. Well, God's love is the same. So when we experience the pathos of God, you'll get that full range. Righteous anger at injustice. Anger, certain kind of anger, is biblically grounded. Anger is an expression of love. If I have my kids and somebody comes and hurts them, it will be dysfunctional for me to say, to not feel anger. Anger is an expression of love. So that's why jealousy is an expression of love. When someone that you love is taken away, you are going to be jealous. So the pathos is to say the four, it's the different emotions of God. It could be anger, it could be compassion, it could be heartache, it could be elation, it could be the full thing. Okay. And if we don't have pathos in our relationship with God, then things will sense, will, will, will be experienced as very dry, kind of boring, or just merely religious. Because it's really the pathos that gets into you, right? This Sunday, there's going to be, tomorrow, there's going to be two football games. I wish some other team was in there, you know. <laughs> but the fans of any of the four teams, you don't have to convince them. Please watch the game against the Chiefs and the Patriots, Rams and the Saints. Steelers that are making. <laughs> but if Steelers made it, you don't have to tell Pastor Q, hey, Pastor Q, make sure you get hyper and excited. No, no, he already is hyper and excited, right? So that's the pathos, right? So a pathos, the feeling in a person will, from the inside out, energize that person, right? And so when we have the pathos of God, it's an inside-out job. You, 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 and so out of that pathos, you, just, the be, you need an outlet, and that outlet is prayer. Something good happens, it's worship. Feel like dancing. Feel like raising your hand. If you're heartbroken, you move into intercession. You plead. So if you don't have the pathos, you don't have the inner motivation to express it. And that's why for some, prayer is so boring because it's external. It's not inside of you. It's on the outside. It becomes some, some kind of duty. You have to do it, like an obligation. Oh, I'm a good Christian. I guess I have to pray. What happens when that prayer comes from the fire within? I don't know what to do. I can't help but pray because I'm going to go crazy if I don't pray. So you end up praying. Yeah. And you're, you're praying because the pathos needs an outlet. The fire needs an outlet. The, the, the intensity needs an expression. You know, th these intense feelings need to be expressed. Because if you don't, you will go crazy. It's like telling, I have a lot of parental, I mean, my girls give me joy most of the time, sometimes heartache. But mostly joy. When they do something awesome, at least I got to share it with my wife. It would be torture if I just said, the surprising one is always a little one. I mean, she's like, one time she was in elementary school, she's 
dragging this big plastic jar of like M&Ms or something, or, or Hershey Kisses. And she doesn't tell you anything. I go, honey, what are you doing? I'm bringing the Hershey Kisses. How did you get that? I was the closest to guess up the number. <laughs> they, had a, they were asked, you know, how many Hershey Kisses are in the jar? And her, her guess was the closest as a gift. And so when she did something little, that's not life-changing, by the way, but <laughs> I had to tell my mom, I had to tell my wife, and of course my mom thinks she's a genius, <laughs> you know, any, any little thing is a genius, you know. So when you're joy, you got to find an expression for me to not share it. I mean, it'd be torture, like, I got to send it in an email, I got to, I don't know, at least with my wife, I said, well, isn't that amazing? And then if you're in grief, if you're in mourning, you got to express it. Right? When someone that you love is really struggling, you would say, hey, can you pray with me? This person's really having a hard time. Right? So that's what I mean by the pathos. Okay? And, and, and that begins by asking, you know, uh, Lord, what's on your heart? Tell me what's on your heart. Lord, give me some of your feelings. You know, the information and that the emotion. Okay. Uh, so yesterday you were talking about the whole Mother Teresa Dark Knight of the yeah. And so, I don't know, I guess today's message kind of is like the flip side of that. Yeah. But in that situation when, you know, like you don't feel anything, it's yeah. just like the absence of God. Yeah. Uh, how did he deal with that feeling of like not feeling judged? Because is pathos something like you're supposed to just like reach out? It's like I'm not feeling anything, so I'm t you know like I'm just gonna like focus and try to like get that feeling back. Or is there a certain way we should kind of navigate while we don't have those feelings like at that moment? Right. For for Andrew, uh, the, the, even the way I explained to him, Andrew, this is. This is part of your story. It's not the entire story. It, we'd be talking about something entirely different if he only now experienced God's absence. Okay. Then, then something weird is happening. Something strange. God has judged you. God has abandoned you. But with Andrew, it was, it was a lengthy time, but it was during his imprisonment. And so it's like understanding that episode. And I think if we're honest, and I, I encourage you, I think, Andrew, I think it would be important for you to write about it because every believer, one time or another, will enter into the dark night of the soul. You'll, you'll enter into a time where... And for some people, they'll have a Job-like experience, very few. Things are happening, and none of it's making sense, right? Sometimes you can make sense of the, the pain that you're going through. But there's sometimes that you, you can't make sense. You, you, you don't have the faintest idea why God would allow it. It doesn't add up. When a really old person passes away, that kind of makes sense. Oh, they had a great life. 
She was 99. But when a nine-year-old passes away, especially prophecies about how great they're going to do, and that person passes away, and there isn't anything the parents did wrong, there's nothing, and the child just dies by accident or sickness. Like, from your standpoint, it makes no sense. Now, if you have a God who doesn't intervene, then, then you're like the rest of the world. When someone dies, you end up telling what's called efficient causation. How did that person die? Well, the car came, and I know mechanically why that was. But if you believe in a God who intervenes, then the question is, why didn't he intervene at the other time? And that's a legitimate question. And so when questions don't make sense, that is also a kind of pathos that you're working through. And so for Andrew, what I, what I again, I, I don't have God's point of view. I said, Andrew, I think what you experience, thankfully, is not experienced by, by many believers. But I believe the Lord knew your strength of character. And he allowed you to experience something terrible in order for you to ha share the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. There's a suffering, we, think, we tend to think of suffering maybe physically, but for a person who loves God, the greatest suffering is to experience God's absence. And that's what Jesus experienced. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For a lover to be not with the beloved is the greatest pain. And so he experienced that perhaps experience something that Jesus experienced. And the other aspect that, that I suggested to, to Andrew is, Andrew, what you experience is part of what many people experience in their lives without God. Now, they don't have that contrast, but many Turks live lives without God at all. Life without God, that's hell. You got to experience that. So at this point, we're guessing, we're speculating. We're like, this is so strange. Why does a man who's experienced the intimacy of God enter into a season where he experiences the opposite? Now, I could, I could have been tempted to say, Andrew, it was just your emotion. God was really there. You just didn't experience it. You weren't on your meds. You, you were terrified. But really, I'll tell you what you really, you really did experience God's love. You just don't recognize that. No, I believe my friend. And I believe that God could have come in a dream. He was just asking for some sign. He was asking for a dream. He was asking for a feeling. Right? And so I knew as he's getting out, this had to be dealt with very carefully because it's not a topic that people are comfortable with, especially in charismatic circle. You don't go around saying, I felt God's absence. Like, I rebuke you in Jesus' name. <laughs> or they just kind of neglect you. There's no category. And so I had to look at Catholic theology to kind of get some insight. I said, Andrew, I'm not telling, saying that your mother, Teresa, but very similar. I think you did experience God's absence. Then the question is why? For what good? And I said, I think for sharing in the fellowship of his suffering. 
and to experience what people without God experience. So now you, you have greater empathy. He was compassionate, but he's got empathy. Hell on earth is a life without God. He experienced hell on earth. But if he processes it wrong, God rejected me, God hates me, God abandons me, you know, God is judging me, this is a, then his theology would totally lead him in the opposite direction. What is remarkable about Andrew is that despite this, I think for many of us going through it, we would walk away. But he can't help himself but still love Jesus and to give his life for Jesus. It's, it's a bizarre thing. It's almost like a dysfunctional relationship. You're in, a, you're in an abusive relationship. You keep on going back to the abuser. And so, bad analogy. But, but his relationship with Jesus is so, so, so deep. He can't shake it. He, he, he doesn't know anything else. So he loves Jesus without trusting in Jesus. Trusting in certain outcomes. Now, now he doesn't think of, I have trust for a certain outcome. So I said, Andrew, maybe you could just trust him in a relationship. Not trust in outcome, but trust him as a person. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But that's also the pathos of God. You know, that's the full thing. And, and when we look at people who have deep walks with God, they do have desert times, the dark night of the soul, feeling dry and abandoned. Uh, there's a, a term in Latin called assidia. Uh, it's translated sloth, but it's actually sadness. And sadness, assidia, the danger of it is despair. So in, the, in, in hope, you have two, two vices related to hope. One is presumption. Oh, I'm, I'm God's favor. I'm going to make it. The other is despair. And so the medievals gave a lot of thought to this assidia. Despair begins with, despair begins with a sadness. What we may call depression. And so when somebody is depressed, their whole thinking changes. The outlook changes. And so assidia is spiritual depression. The words are not touching you. The Bible is not touching you. Church isn't touching you. Sleep is not fixing it. Going to conferences isn't touching it. Something you can't really put your finger on it. And so sometimes you go through that, and the Lord can help you through it. The prophetic journey. There's no guarantee. I mean, you know, that's why it's it's. I would say it's an invitation to deep life, but not necessarily happy life, like happy-go-lucky life, I mean. It's an invitation to deep life. I think the second part of this question, you're in the place, oh, how yeah. do we grow in pathos? Sure, this is where the church comes in, that's where our friends come in. You know, our Christian life isn't just me trying to work out everything, and so part of as, as a friend of Andrew's, I'm, I'm putting in my two cents. He's getting prayer. Okay. And so that's also part of the life. When we are in trouble, reach out. Ask people to pray for you. We're not called to be Superman and Superwoman. So especially emotionally, 
as we're walking with God and we hit that sense of God's absence, ask people. And sometimes it's a combination. Sometimes it is chemical. The serotonin levels or whatever, you know, whatever. So take some medicine. Sometimes lack of sleep. You have young kids. You haven't slept in the past four months. You're, you're going crazy. You're, you're too tired. Sometimes it's burnout. But sometimes we are the least expert in diagnosing what we're going through. Like for me, I, 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 I'm kind of clueless. Like, like on some, Monday mornings, I say, why am I so tired? You just had a long weekend. Like, so get people around you to pray for you. I do distinguish between feelings and reality. It, it, it's true that God loves you and you may not feel it. Okay, so you got to have the right theology. And that's why Bob's adoration prayer is powerful. The normal, natural thing is to allow our context, including our emotional context, to define our relationship with God. The discipline of adoration says, no, no. This is not all of reality. I'm going to declare the nature of God. And so what happens? God, you are good. You are beautiful. You are compassionate. You are faithful. You're declaring that which is true. And then your emotions end up lining up to that truth. Often we are at the mercy of our emotion. So we need to check our emotion. Our emotion should never be our master to lead us. But our emotion should be subject to truth. Okay? And so adoration prayer, being steeped in God's word, declaring. And there is a place of endurance. All right. There is a strength to perseverance. Suffering leads to perseverance. Perseverance to character. Character to hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured into our heart's love, right? Romans 5, 3 to 5. So there is a strength of perseverance, but it's not only perseverance. Yeah. It's relationship, you know. And so back to that question, just be honest. I think, uh, and this is where leaders have a harder time. I would say pastors, like when you're, when you're feeling, it, it's, it seems unspiritual to ask people, when, like, can you pray for me? But especially leaders here, you need to model, you know, uh, uh, helplessness. That, that isn't quite the word. Uh, you need to model, model transparency or honesty. Like, I, I need your prayers. I need your help. You don't air out everything, but to be vulnerable, Brene Brown is really good at this. Dare to Lead is her latest book. The power to overcome, like shame, is being vulnerable, saying that I feel shame. The power, the access to the power of God is saying, Lord, I'm weak. I need your help. Yeah. I don't know if... Any, any other questions? I tend to have a habit of listening and then making my own question and then answering it. 
I, I'll get that look from our students. They'll ask, and then something triggers, and I just go on for like 15 minutes, and they're like, you didn't really answer my question? Or, and I'm thinking, I don't really care, because <laughs> I'm more interested in what I have to say. Not <laughs> I guess the question is, how do we grow yeah. deeper and, and, and hearing God and, and growing in a relationship with Him, I guess? Yeah. yeah. That's really up to God, though. So, so the way I see growth is not like an um, exercise program or dieting. Okay. Our relationship with God is a relationship. And it begins with God's interest in us growing in him. So he's first interested. He's not apathetic at all. He is invested in, in, in deepening. Okay, so on his side, he wants to do it. Our side is to say yes to that invitation. And our, our, is, our, our side is to be obedient, to respond to him when he's stirring us to pray. To go, go and give yourself to pray. When he says, talk to that person, to say, all right, I, I, I don't like confrontation, but I, I, I'm going to obey you, Lord. It's to respond to his leading. And so he, he, will, do the, he will do the deepening. So he's not saying, all right, here's, you know, here's a project you may want to consider. Go at it, and then when you're in trouble, come talk to me. It's not like that. God wants to deepen it. So what holds us back is, I would say, one is fear. Okay? One is just ignorance. We don't think of deepening our relationship. Like, okay, I'm terrible at this, okay? Most guys are defined, like, like God, my relationship with Shin is odd because we don't actually share a whole lot. So Kyung will say, like, you have the strangest relationship, Shen, with John. Like, oh, you know, he prays for me. I pray for him. So guys are terrible. Like, when we're in a friendship, we don't define the friendship. We don't ask, like, hey, how's our friendship going? Is it deeper? Are we, like, getting to know at a more intimate level? If some guy says anything near that, I go, ugh. Like, like what kind of guy are you? Like, stay away from me. But women are better at that, right? And that's why guys need to be re-educated when they're in a marriage because all their lives, they don't have, they have acquaintances. Even their best friends are like, you know, like somebody punched in the face. I mean, that's about it, you know, but you haven't. And so when guy, what I notice when guys get married, they, they are at like kindergarten level in terms of like relationship. It's the woman that said, honey, you have to share with me how you're feeling. Are you angry? No, I'm not. Uh, no, this sounds like a joke. This is actually my education. So Suzanne said, follow after me. All right. I, I feel, feel angry. Angry. She had to educate me. And the deepening of that relationship is sharing what I'm feeling. It's something I have. And there are feelings that are very awkward for a guy to say, you know, when you say that, you demean me. That hurts. <laughs> you know, so guys have a hard time because you don't want to present yourself as weak, as needy, as petty, whatever. 
You don't want to complain about some, some little offense, you know? So, so in a relationship with God, it's the same thing. We, we don't do it for many of us, men and women, but especially God, because we are ignorant. We live with God as some massive power like the sun, but we don't think of God as someone who enjoys deepening that relationship. So we actually need skills. We need language. And so we can say, how goes your relationship with God? Are you falling in love with him? What is God revealing, to, revealing himself to you? What are you discovering about yourself? Those are the kinds of questions we need to ask. We're not trained in that. Yeah. No. So I would say fear is one. We, ha- we do have the fear of the unknown God. Like we, all of us are a control freak to a certain extent. As long as we can put God, God, church, you're good. But not in my bedroom. Not in the den with a video game. Not when I'm eating, because I'm a glutton. I don't want you, like, judging me, you know. So we, we like to put God in his place, and we, we ask God not to come into our thought life, our sexual lives, perhaps our parenting, our use of money. Think thoughts about our retirement. There's certain places we don't want God, because... Because we think God wants to change it, and we don't want to hear the nagging God. Okay. So there's a fear. So if we want to really grow up, we just say, Lord, all my life is yours. You, you get to speak to me. And then you tell people, like your spouse, friend, this is how I want to grow up. Can you ask me, like, how am I doing in my thought life? My, th- my use of money. You know, tell somebody that. I'm still learning. But it's really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. And so we let God be God and say, Lord, I'm not going to control you, keep you at a distance. I'm going to just open up my heart and tell you, this is what's really upsetting me. This is where I'm really struggling, I'm addicted to this thing, whether it's gambling or porn or whatever, or anger or overeating, overeat. I'm really struggling with this, Lord. And then you may even share it with a friend or two. Can you pray for me? I'm struggling in this area. Any other questions? Yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of times in churches we talk about the love of God. But the fear of God, yeah, yeah. I, I, just like, you yeah. know, I think, I think for me, that, that's something that, yeah. you know, just to learn and just to have practical ways to fear. Yeah. And I think. Yeah, so it's, where the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes kind of sums up. You got all this kind of nihilistic, everything is vapor. And at the end, the sum of the matter is fear of God, right? And so basically, the fear, fear is not fear of punishment for the believer. Okay? Usually, fear is associated that we're in trouble, God's going to smack us. Okay? The Hebrew word fear has that notion of fear, but it also has a deep no, deeper notion of being awed. 
being awed by God. And so without a healthy dose of fear, then we take God for granted, especially in holiness and how we walk with God. We'll, we'll, we'll operate with cheap grace, sentimental love. God loves me. I could say whatever. I could watch whatever. I could whatever. You don't have a healthy fear. You don't have a deep respect. And so when you have a combination of love and fear, then you know God is God. I mean, great picture of that is Isaiah 6, prophetic call. First thing after he sees it, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. And that is to recognize God's awesomeness and holiness. God is God. God will judge. Your life is so important to God, he will ask, he will give, you will be accountable to him. Now, if that doesn't give you fear, I don't know what would. And, and the fear also is connected to deep honoring of God. Lord, I want to honor you with my life. Even though this is hard, I want to honor you and live rightly before you. So you need both. But if you only have fear and don't have love, then, then you, are, you are always operating under the burden, the fear, yeah, the apprehension. And when it's just fear, you, you, you don't have any intimacy. You could be an employee, a servant, but you can't be a son. And so it's both. The son that loves, but also the, the servant. He is the Lord. Any other questions? Yeah. I like what you said about the thing you said is more than um, about accuracy. Yeah. Or even the, um, it's more than the content or it's more than the prophetic word or the prophecy. And you yeah. kind of differentiated between, yeah. like the definition of prophetic, I think people were afraid to say that we're prophetic. Because yeah, we see right. it in this all things. That's but right. you differentiate yeah. between, yeah. if we say as a people of God that we hear yeah. from God, yeah. I hear God, yeah. God speaks to me, yeah. I'm prophetic. Yeah. Because, yeah. again, if you look in the Bible, the people who are prophets are interpreting the times. Yeah. And it's not this fortune-telling yeah. of the future yeah. type thing. But I think, yeah. and then you differentiate that. You said clearly in First Corinthians that there's the gift of prophecy. Yeah. But you were saying your daughters are prophetic yeah. and that... It's the norm, and we should move in that. But I feel like Christians have, um, among all the different gifts, we, we think, oh, no, I'm not a prophet. Yeah. No one wants to be called a prophet, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so we don't, we shy away from it. But I think that was really good yeah. how you brought that out, the difference of if you hear from God, I hear from God, but I've never said to people, I'm prophetic, yeah. you know? Um, and, I, and I... And that will be weird. And hey, I'm... <laughs> no one's going to say that. <laughs> no, no, but that, I think this is important. I mean, that's yes. something, that's something, uh, Pastor Elijah Kim, who was praying for me, uh, he says, John, you're a prophet, but you don't believe it. And that's exactly how I was feeling. And that was a hang-up for me. Because when I saw the prophet, like Bob, I go, I'm, I'm no Bob. 
That's my definition of the prophet. There's too much pressure. There's too much like, oh my gosh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So there is, there is, right. So when I, so it's like what your mind is grabbing. And again, Bob was helpful. Like, if, if your prophetic word is accurate, let's say it's like a negative news and that comes through, you shouldn't be dancing around. Like, I got it. <laughs> 15 people dead by that accident. <sighs> like, what? Don't you wish that you were wrong? Yeah, it's, it's, it's the prophetic heart over the prefer, prophetic accuracy, the prognosticator. So God says such and such terrible things. A tsunami will come and 3,000 will die in two weeks' time. And you hear that. Say, Lord, may it not be. May it not be. And sure enough, in two weeks' time, 3,000 people die. You would not go around saying, hey, I got that. Mm-hmm. I'm the prophet. Yeah. And so if we're too fixated on accuracy, we tend to elevate our accuracy above all things. It's the prophetic heart. And in that case, you'd rather be wrong. And But because we're so fixated on accuracy, we are, if we're honest, we don't want to make mistakes. We don't want to embarrass ourselves. So we never grow in it. But if we say, hey, it's not about accuracy, go ahead. You could be wrong. I could be wrong. It gives us the freedom to play, and the prophetic grows best when it's playful, not when it's burdensome, when it's pressurized. And so that's why I, with our girls, I say, we're going to teach all our church kids that way. Like, so they don't feel burdened. They don't have to be somebody different. They could be who they are, and let's just pray to God and have fun with it. Not that it's not serious. It is, but to kind of unburden them. There's no... Re, like, oh my goodness, I'm a prophet. No, no, you should be able to hear God. And often you'll get it right, but sometimes you get it wrong. No big deal. And so this kind of no big deal atmosphere culture actually helps people to risk. The growth in prophecy is filled with mistakes. Because you have to risk. And sometimes you're wrong. Okay. And so the, the growing in the prophetic really does challenge your sense of pride, shame, and fear. But I had to go through with it. I just felt like, hmm. but, you know, with Elijah, you're a prophet, but you don't believe it. That's exactly how I was feeling. All the people say, oh, you're prophetic, you're prophetic. Yeah, 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 everyone's prophetic, you know. But inside, I didn't feel it. After he said that, my prayer changed. I said, Lord, of all the gifts, I like the prophetic. Help me to grow in it. But I had to make sure I don't judge myself with Bob standard. Like, I want to I get phone numbers, birth dates. Okay? You know, because if I do that, then I'm doomed. Right? Because I'm going to, like, I'm not getting it. Then I feel like I'm, I'm a failure. I say, Lord, I want to be a prophet according to your design, your plans for me. And, and if I do move like Bob, hallelujah. But if I don't, fine. You know. But because of all these hang-ups we do as a culture, especially Asian culture, we have a hard time saying, I'm prophetic. Or I want to grow in the prophetic. 
Ja. Ja. Amen. I just, I, I just mentioned a few tips. Okay. One is growing the prophetic together. Okay. Like pray for people. Pray with somebody next to you. Like I, I love praying with Pastor Q because when we're teaming up, there's an anointing there and then there's a confirmation there. So when you're praying with people, okay, it becomes the burden isn't just on you, but it becomes fun and you actually grow. Okay? The other thing is journal if you can. Write down the things you get in prayer because we do forget. Okay? So grow in the prophetic by being a good intercessor. Have a list of people you're praying for. Take your time, soak them. And sometimes you don't get that much. You say, Lord, I'm just going to soak this person. But if there is a specific word or picture that you want me to pray about, would you give that to me? And so you put that down. And if the occasion is appropriate, you could share. You know, I've been in prayer for you the last three weeks and keep on getting this word. Does this word make any sense to you? Yeah. And, and so the prophetic grows as, as you pray. I'm going to just say the words of, of 1 Corinthians 14 as a question. Okay? Follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy. Do you want this? Do you want to eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially prophecy? If so, raise your hand. This is powerful. Why would Paul say eagerly desire? You desire that which you don't have. Right? If you already have it, it makes no sense to eagerly desire something you already have. But he wants the people in Corinth to grow in it. And so God responds to our desire. Why would he ask us to desire it if God's kind of playing games with us? I mean, you know, he's not. The presumption is he asks us to desire so that he can answer us, eagerly desire, seek, ask, knock. So, Lord, we thank you for the leaders here. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you indwell us. We thank you that for every believer, they know your presence because it's only by your presence we cry out, Abba, Father. But we pray for the growth in what we call the prophetic, hearing your heart for the sake of a nation, for a city, for a person, for a church, for a community, for the next generation, for our own children, for our parents. Because we know, Lord, you are filled with thoughts. You are filled with desires and plans. You're filled with wisdom. We just want to have access to that. So, Lord, we ask that you would take all of our desires of, of wanting to grow in the prophetic, and we say, release it, Lord. Release a stronger measure of this gifting. Increase the sensitivity in the, in the hearts of the people here. Increase their faith. Lord, you be the definer of who they are. You tell them who they are. I pray, Lord, that 
for the rest of the day today and in the coming weeks and months, you will stir them like a fire, a, a, a small spark and could destroy a whole forest in a negative way. I just asked for the spark of this yes to the prophetic. That they would, your people here will, will enter into a life filled with pathos, filled with prayer that needs to be expressed, filled with divine perspective, that you would do it, Lord, because you are the living God. It's not us who really desire it and you, you are reluctant. It's the opposite. You are the one who really desires to speak and empower. So we say yes to that greater reality. Be with your people in Jesus' name. Amen. And so if you are interested in uh, John Leland Center, you can email me and uh, we're going to discount. <laughs> the Lord bless you. The Lord help you in your imprisonment for the next couple more hours. <laughs> I am free. I am free. <laughs>